0: Wonderful. My name's Andrew. It's an absolute privilege to have some time with you this morning. We're going to be talking about contentment this morning. Radical contentment. We're going to be talking about money. I don't know about you, but this is one of those things that sometimes in church we misstep And I pray this morning that as we open up God's word, that he speaks to every single one of us. I'm preaching to myself more than anyone else here. Every one of these scriptures we're going to be reading. I'm reading for myself more than for anyone else. I feel a sense of trepidation as I stand up in front of you and bring a few of these scriptures. Because of all the things I could speak about, none of them I'd be fixed in and solved in. But this is certainly an area where every one of us are on a journey of obedience. A journey of stewardship. Of all those things that God has placed into our hands. We're going to be talking about how high the stakes are in our lives and in society, how there's an opportunity for us to be a bit righteously rebellious against the rules of this world, how our wallets can be used as weapons for the kingdom and that there's an adventure ahead of us. I think there's some fun things to dive into this morning. Before we do that, why don't we just grab your wallet or your phone or your cards, whatever is there, just grab hold of it. This is a scary moment, right? I'm not going to ask the ushers to take up another offering. It's all okay. You know, there's two things that really tell the truth about our lives. We can sing it's all about you and all I have is yours, but our calendar tells on us as to where we spend our time, and our our wallets, our bank accounts tell on us as to where our financial priorities are. It's really difficult to get away from those line by line where my money's going so father as we as we start opening up your word and talking about contentment and talking about financial well-being we hold on to our wallets our cards our phones whatever it is we use some people might even be holding cash and father we thank you that everything we have is yours We want to be good stewards of what you've placed into our lives. We want to be faithful with what you've given us. And we want to plant seeds for the future, not just the future on this earth, but our future in eternity. So, Father, as we as we open up your word and we... Talk about these issues. Father, I pray that everything I say that isn't of you would just fall to the ground and everything that you're speaking to us this morning about would be like clanging gongs in the ears of every single one of us that are listening. That we would walk away with your wisdom imparted in us in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. 15% of what Jesus said was about money. If we add up all the scriptures that talk about faith and prayer, Combine them, there's still more that's talking about the work that we do with our hands, that's talking about finance, that's talking about money. 2,000 verses of scripture. You know, money is a fantastic servant, but it's an awful master. Francis Bacon, the great English statesman, said something like that, and he ended up in financial ruin. He knew this all too well, that our money can be a fantastic servant, but it's an awful master. The stakes are really high for this topic. They can be what what we have as the resource in our lives, can be the capacity, can be the limiter, can be the prison we live in. It can be the empowerment for ourselves and our children and those around us. It's a primary cause for divorce and relational breakdown. It constrains opportunity. The stakes are also high for eternity. If we go to Matthew 6, 19, Do not lay up for yourselves treasured on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The message translation says, it's obvious, isn't it? For where your treasure is, the place where your treasure is, is the place you will most want to be and the place you will end up being. We know 1 timothy 6 the scripture that's often used for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with all kinds of griefs the stakes are high the stakes are high in the economic climate in which we are in the uk the latest inflation number is around eight percent it's come down a touch but it's still more than we've experienced for many years i know there are many people in this place that say we've seen far far worse but Inflation is gripping this country, there's wage stagnation, and the poorest of the poor in our nation are facing real hardship. There are less safety nets. I think the Oxford English Dictionary English Dictionary has now added perma crisis, that sense that we're just going through one crisis after another. This is hard. And it's also hard, because in this room we have people in all different situations. There's some people here with jobs, some without jobs. Some with dependents, some with not dependents. Some with benefits, some without benefits. Some who are doing great. Some who are facing challenges about their next meal. We're reading on the news, migrant deaths as they cross the channel in the search of a better life. The stakes are high, and this is hard. God doesn't call us to be successful, he calls us to be faithful. And let's start off by just establishing that before we go any further. Our job is not to seek success, it's to seek faithfulness, to be trusting, to obey. Luke 16.10 says, Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. Trusted with little, trusted with much. We sit here this morning with an attitude of stewardship, however little or much we have. I don't know why the Master... In that parable in Matthew 25 gives some one, some two, some five. But I do know that he asked all of them to be faithful with what he had given them. The time, the talents, the treasure, the capacity that he'd given them. So there's no judgment in this room whether you're trusting God for your next meal or whether you're trusting God for a multi-million pound business deal. That's not the point. That's not what we're dealing with today. We honor God in both of those situations by trusting and obeying by focusing on him, by putting him as first in our lives. I felt that complete frustration and shame at my finances. How can't, why can't I get things under control? Maybe it's just me in this place, but that, that Saturday morning sinking feeling as we've got to go and look at our budget and pull out an Excel spreadsheet and realize that we've spent more than we wanted to and we don't have enough for what we think we needed. In my work, I've many times been in a situation where what we see in front of us, the resource in our bank account is not enough to pay the staff we've employed and what we've got ahead of us. Many, many of us, many, many people in this room have journeyed with me through some of those ups and downs, some of those highs and lows of suddenly realizing that if it wasn't for a miracle, then something bad is going to happen. I remember, if you, if you Google the company that I was running at the time, the company we built, it, it, The one article in the press, in the Evening Standard, was about how our office manager stole a six-figure sum from us. And I remember that day, years ago, where we got this call to say we just discovered 12 months of fraud, 300 grand. It was what we were going to pay our staff, their mortgages, and families were based on that. And suddenly this sinking, this shame, this sinking feeling that we'd not been responsible with the money that was there. It wasn't our money. We'd been lent it. We'd been given it been invested in us by VCs, by venture capitalists, and suddenly we were sitting there, and the money they'd given us to go and build this business, to build value for them, we'd not been good stewards of. We trusted someone. The whole company loved and trusted this person, and yet they'd st- stolen from under our noses. And we now, you know, the one thing was facing up to the, the lack we had. The, the worst thing was having to go back to the people who had given us the money and say, I'm sorry, we've screwed this up. And yet, even in those dark moments where you just wish the whole world would just swallow you up, there'll be a hole you can just dive into, he remains faithful. I know there's people all across this room who've got story after story. We heard a couple testimonies earlier, stories after stories of God's faithfulness. Have you got one of those? I've heard some of them from you. God's faithfulness, time and time again. I've got so much respect for people in this room that when I know your story of those moments of believing for God to come through where everything natural says the game's up for people across this room that inspire me because of the lack of the world's claws that are in you trusting God and being content with what's in your in your world rather than having this worldly need to chase and amass more all these challenges that we see in front of us they're also an opportunity to be founded on the rock to live by faith to be a witness to those around us just like many people here have been a witness an example to me as i've been growing and especially in a time of economic crisis it's our opportunity as the church in the nation to be a source of provision to be a source of help for those in our communities that have the biggest needs Today we're going to talk about a few things that are demonstrably countercultural. God's way is different to the world we live in. It's upside down. I know at limitless one of the key scriptures that uh, everyone was looking at was Romans 12:122. 12, 12, do not conform to the pattern of this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind and then you will be able do not conform be transformed and then you will be able We're going to talk about four ways this morning that we need to allow God to transform our minds. Four ways that we need to allow him to update our operating systems, update our sets of ambitions and our sets of beliefs. Four ways we need to update the way that the world has taught us to think. The first one is around the normality that we judge our lives by. We spend 24-7 bumping up against different people, bumping up against a whole array of advertising and social media scrolling that sets normality for us. And the ch- challenge with that normality is it's not God's normality. We're judging ourselves against something that God doesn't judge us against. Back in the early 1900s, um, Veblen, Torsten Veblen wrote a lot about what he called conspicuous consumption. It's even more paramount today, the fact that anyone who's got something to spend, and even those who don't but can access credit to do it, tend to conspicuously consume, that is, to consume things that they're spending more than they need to of in order to bolster their identity in society. He writes about conspicuous consumption, conspicuous leisure, spending time on activities that take a lot of time and take a lot of money as a way of gaining status in society. We see, through every ad and every social media scroll, the norm is lots and lots of expensive holidays, and eating out, and coffees all the time, constant spending. We also see that it's normal to hide these areas of our lives when things are going wrong, and to not admit when we've got a challenge in front of us, to just open up another credit card. Following on that, that theme of conspicuous consumption, the, uh, the philosopher Ritzer then wrote in, nin- in the 90s, about what he called cathedrals of consumption. Now, we're standing in a church this morning. I'm standing, you're sitting in a church this morning. And that hits home, and he meant it really specifically. Cathedrals of consumption, because the malls that he was describing, the Apple stores he was describing, are designed as being big, open spaces that give us this vast sense of being, that promise us that if we just buy the next thing, then our lives are going to be okay that have this sense of theater and drama around them that moves our emotions. Cathedrals of consumption. There's a wonderful book um, titled Affluenza, The Illness of Affluence, that I, love, I loved reading uh, as I was at university. And In that book it says, possession overload is the kind of problem where you have so many things, you find your life is being taken up by maintaining and caring for things instead of people. Dr. Richard Swenson in the book says, everything I own, owns me. People feel sad, and what do they do? They go to the mall and they shop, which makes them feel better, but only for a short time. There's an addictive quality in consumerism, but it simply doesn't work. They've gotten all these things, and they still find this emptiness, this hollowness. These are secular philosophers' writing, critiques of consumerism, of what's grabbed us. Normality isn't having nothing as the opposite of all of this. It's just being attached to nothing. Philippians 4.11, if we just pop it up. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it's to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty, and I have learned the secret of being content in and any, every situation. That's a challenging verse. Normality, the normality of our lives, isn't about having nothing. It's about being attached to nothing. We also see in 1 Timothy 6, true godliness with contentment is itself great gain or is itself great wealth. So in our lives, there is a resentment that builds based on us comparing ourselves to a false normality this reality that we are seen in front of us on our TV screens, on our mobile phones. And our job is to replace that resentment with a true godly contentment, a sense that it doesn't matter whether I'm in need or whether I've got everything and I'm fully supplied, but I'm not attached to anything. And therefore, because I know he supplies, I can be content. We've got to oppose resentment with that sense of godly contentment. So the first transformation in our lives is that sense of resentment to contentment. The second one is about our world that teaches us instant gratification. My kids love McDonald's. No one in this room does, obviously, you all love perfectly nutritious food. Our world teaches us that we must have it now, not to wait, not to prepare. Not to invest ahead of time, but to have it now. Every ad asks us to experience right now. And part of my role is in marketing. and There's a whole theory and practice around marketing, around what's called destabilizing the status quo. Taking what people's reality is right now and helping teach them that it's unsafe or untenable or uh, unlikely or unwanted, undesirable, so that you create a gap that people have to fill now. You create urgency of people needing to fill the hole that that marketing, that advertising has now created. And of course, in our world of needing instant gratification, we load up on credit cards, on other forms of debt in order to feed those needs that are created now in front of us. Average UK credit is now starting to rise again. Credit card spending is up to about five or 6,000 pounds per UK adult, depending on which study you see. Saving is down. 34% of UK adults don't have any more than 1,000 pounds in savings. We end up spending to have things now. But with God, we've got to replace now with soon. Remember that old hymn, soon and very soon, we're going to see the king. We've got to replace now with soon. We've got to do that in our natural lives. Proverbs 21 says, The wise store up choice food and olive oil, but fools gulp theirs down. And Matthew six nineteen, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. We've got to transform our minds and allow God to transform our minds to replace the need for now with an understanding that soon has priority. Soon. Not now, soon. The third transformation we need to ask God for in our lives is one of comparison with our neighbors. I remember the first time I really recognized this in myself I was at university in my second year. I was in America, and I was studying to go into business. I was doing a business degree, and that's all I wanted to do. I'd already started a couple of things, and I thought I was doing okay. I'd done everything that was asked of me. And then I met a guy in my class in America who already had this business that had 20 or so staff. And suddenly, not because I was doing any worse than I was a minute before. But the comparison made me crumble inside, because suddenly I realized I wasn't doing as well as I thought I was in comparison to the person sitting next to me. Crazy comparison, stupid comparison, and yet my looking over my shoulder suddenly reduced my self-worth, suddenly eradicated kind of that sense of progress in me, and I was now looking over my shoulder to understand how I could quickly catch up. Disgusting feelings. All of us have the danger, the tendency, to look across the fence to see how we're doing. But in God, the only reason we should ever look across the fence to our neighbors is to see if they have enough. It's not to see if we've done enough, to see if we've caught up. We look over our fence to see if they have enough. There's so many scriptures we could dive into about generosity and sharing rather than comparing. But let's just quickly look at James 2 if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and one of you says to them go in peace be warm and filled without giving them the things that are needed for the body what good is that? Wow! God cares about the physical needs in front of us so we've got to to replace compare with share we've got to replace the need for comparison with the first reaction in our bodies, in our bones, in our minds, is to understand that we should be reaching out and sharing. The fourth transformation is really rooted at the bottom of these rest of these three, which is one of selfishness. Anyone in this room ever displayed selfishness in any way whatsoever? No, just me, two or three? It's a couple of, a couple of honest people in the room, fantastic. We're stewards. Every capitalist influence around us emphasizes the primacy of personal ownership. It emphasizes that we own things, that we get things, and then we have choice to do what we want with those things. But in God, if everything is his, we're merely stewarding it for the 80 years that we're on this planet. And as we said before, he's not demanding success of us. He's demanding faithfulness. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. Psalm 24. I think it's interesting here. It's not just that everything is God's, but also everything that's in us that is able to earn is something he's given us. If we go back to Deuteronomy, remember the Lord your God, it is him who gives you the ability to produce wealth. It's not just that everything is poured into your hands is his. It's the fact that the very skills and talents, the training, the natural instincts that he's put inside of you, Is a gift from him the source of everything you have is his not just everything you have is his and the challenge of these four transformations if we don't allow God to do them in us we have resentment based on a false normality we are comparing ourselves constantly with our neighbors we're needing instant gratification and we've got this sense that everything I have is mine The danger of all of those things is that instead of loving people and using things, we end up using people because we love things. We end up using people because we love things. And I believe that in this community of God, if we're to see his glory revealed to the southwest, it's going to take a people that are looking beyond their own circumstance, beyond their mind, beyond their resentment, beyond their comparison, beyond their now, and looking out to our society, to those around us. To be a people that hold firm the line that our job is to love people passionately and to use things wisely. To love people abundantly and to use things wisely in our pursuit of loving people we're just going to talk about a few ways now before we close for maybe some prayer at the end we're going to talk about some ways that we get to use our wallet as a weapon for the kingdom of god and before that can i just share with you a cheesy 15 year old american video a, we, we all want one of those on a sunday morning don't we cool sunny said yes is that right cool fantastic Suze, if we could just cue this one up. trust. Rock Z-Pie. My German accent isn't very good, but dude, he brought the pie. This is a question of priority. It's a question of priority. In order for us to live with God as first place, we've got to be wise stewards in how we do four things, how we give, how we save, how we spend, and then we'll quickly come on to earn at the very end. Firstly, let's talk about giving. It's not about the church's need. This is about your personal responsibility, your priority and your submission to God. Let's just go to the New Testament. We've got two scriptures here from Corinthians, First Corinthians and second. The first one's really interesting here, and you know, we know anyone who's been in church a while, you'll have read and been taught about tithing and all the scriptures in the Old Testament about that. And the New Testament establishes some principles. There's some great principles in 1 Corinthians 16 too. On the first day, primacy, it gets priority, of every week, it's regular. Each of you should set aside, it's separate and taken out, a sum of money in keeping with your income, it's proportionate, so that when I come, no collections will be have, have to be made. It's the first thing, it's priority. It's regular, it's separate and set aside, and it's in proportion to our income. And then in 2 Corinthians, it says, Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. God loves a cheerful giver. Can you turn to the person next to you, smile, and say, God loves a cheerful giver? (laughs) God loves a cheerful giver. You know, we could talk about all kinds of principles here, but I think these principles are the most important. First, regular, in keeping with your income and set aside. We could dive back in and talk about how the tithe is 10%, and, but then you look in the Old Testament, and many people would read that as actually being this two or three or four different types of tithe that are given. And then we look at the New Testament, and we see this radically generous people who gave more and more and that sold houses and lands in order that everybody in their community would have no need. So I'm not really interested in diving into percentages right now. What's really, really important is that it's first, that it's regular, that it's set apart, and that it's in proportion to our income. If we do this, what I love and what I've seen in my own life is we break the power of those four untransformed minds. I believe that this is part of the action that God gives us in order to transform our mind. Because when we're doing this, when we're doing it first, and it's not like the pie guy where it's the very last thing that's left over. When it's the very first thing that's in our lives, then suddenly we start to establish a new normality in our life, and it's a normality of contentment. We start to not look at who's around us and think about sharing We start to realize that we're actually thinking about the future, not just on this earth, but in the future because of how our hearts are positioned towards God. And we start recognizing that every single thing he's given us, everything he's given us, even the gifts he's given us that we use out in the marketplace, out in the workplace, he's placed them within us. It's not a religious formula. You get to fill this act with faith and there are there are stories all across this room grab me afterwards if you want more from my life of testimonies of when we put god first seek first the kingdom and all these things shall be added so giving the wise steward gives saves and spends so giving how about saving as i said the saving rate in the uk is dropping when I looked at the stats last week, I think at the COVID high, the saving rate in the UK was around 12% of pre-tax income. It's now down at 8% already two years later, and dropping further. There are lots of principles here. If you're earning, you're in the workplace, then some people talk about 10-20-70, about giving 10%, saving 20%, and then spending the 70%. It really depends on your context, right? That will work for some. That will be too little and it will be way too much for others. One thing that I've learned from those around me, beyond me in years, is to think about this as standing orders that go out of the account at the very beginning, savings that go into different accounts, that I can't see them, because if it's there, I'll spend it. Creating new pots of money that even a tiny bit of money is going into every single month so that something is building for the future. In a high-interest environment like now, not having a current account but putting in a savings account makes a big difference, because otherwise, that money just inflates away. And also thinking about saving with purpose. Not just putting savings there for the sake of it, but think about the buffer, what you need if something goes wrong in the house, thinking about those things you would love to do, or experience, or have in the future. So we want to be wise givers, we want to be wise savers, and we want to be wise spenders. This is probably the most challenging one for me. I travel for work, I work long hours, and then I'm tired when I'm tired, it comes back to, I want something quickly, I want food quickly, I want to solve that challenge quickly. I don't want to spend more time digging in and researching what the best deal is, I just want it now. But we get to choose our lifestyle. And we need to choose it with design and without default. That might be cooking healthy rather than eating out and eating fast food. It might be charity shopping. I love charity shopping. Everything I'm wearing right now is from a charity shop. I, lo- I love the, the. I go with my daughter, we go and cruise through hospice care and get what we need for the next, uh, the next few months. I don't know what it is for you, but think about a godly normality of how you spend your money. Separate your needs from wants. We're really bad at thinking all these things in front of us are needs, whereas when we look really seriously, often there's a whole bunch of wants tied up in there as well. And then regularly ass- assess what you spend and then what you can cut. In our businesses, we do this as well. We should do it in our personal life. Every six months or so, walk out of the room, come back in the room, look at what's being spent, and say, is it all necessary? But we're doing this with purpose. It's not thriftiness for the sake of it or ascetism. This is a case of wanting to use our finance for God's glory. And so looking at everything that's on our plate of spend and saying, do we really need that? One thing that I love doing with my kids is having a conversation with the advertising we we face. We see a, a TV ad or we see some big billboard, and I love to say, okay, what is, it, what is this trying to do? What's this trying to do in our lives? What's it trying to destabilize? What's it trying to persuade? I think sometimes we need to look at the world's messaging and communication with a response of, I know what you're doing. I know what you're doing. I know what need you're trying to create. I know what urgency you're trying to build in my life. I know what you're doing. I think it's fascinating when you dive into the psychology of all of this. You know, Tesco Value, with the blue stripes and the red, and they've recently rebranded that because they felt it was getting too embarrassing for people to put those in their trolleys. And that was one of the reasons of then changing it to other own brands. But there was a whole psychology behind making it look like that. Because if you're trying to profit maximize in a grocery store, you want everyone to spend the maximum on every category of good. And if someone can't afford the, whatever the premium version of Tesco's is, then they'd have to get over the embarrassment, as the designers saw it, of putting this thing that looked like it was really cheap in their trolley. It was designed to look ugly, so that only the people who had to buy it would buy it, and everyone else would spend an extra 20, 30, 50p on buying the thing that didn't look so ugly. I know what you're doing. We've got to have that conversation with the visuals that are around us, the messages that are around us, what the world is trying to tell us. I know what you're doing. And then... As we just come in and conclude here, I want to remind myself, remind everyone here, that this should be an adventure. Sometimes the discipline of creating pots, and getting the Excel spreadsheet out, and thinking about what we're saving, spending, giving, I don't know, can bore us to tears. This should be an adventure. We've often been shocked when we've redone our budget. I know that fear, not wanting to look at the account, not wanting to sit and discuss it, but this should be an adventure. Our giving should be an adventure. Honestly, it's been one of the most exciting bits of my life is saying, okay, God, what are you going to do? Maybe there's people here today who are going to look at the economic challenge in front of us and put a little bit more in a savings fund, not for themselves, but to say, "Hmm, he can do it. That's what I'm going to store up to easily overflow into situations around me. Think about your postcode and... What are you going to do to bless it as a result of what you've been able to save? And this isn't just a case of settling. Contentment does not mean settling. In contentment, our circumstances are nothing. But in settling, our circumstances are everything. They define us. In contentment, we say, your will be done. Your kingdom come. But in settling, we say, oh, whatever I get, I get. We're not talking about settling here. In fact, part of stewardship is also working and trusting for increase. We see that through the Bible time and time again. And this isn't some flaky prosperity gospel. I love what Mola says about that. That the biggest problem with prosperity theology is not that it promises too much, but that it promises too little. Let's not reduce our God to pounds and pence to things that come into the bank account. The win from our God is so much greater and so much mightier in any said simple formulaic return that someone might want to preach. It's not about that at all, but he owns it all. The cattle on a thousand hills are his. Part of being a steward is to trust for increase. If we roll forwards in that passage about uh, Philippians, to verse 19, it says, my God shall supply all your needs according to his glorious, his glorious riches. We shouldn't be burying our talents. When we look at the The passage, the Matthew 25, some one, some two, some five, but there is zero judgment on the person who got given one for being given one. The challenge and the judgment and the conviction is because of burying that rather than using it for the master's advantage. This isn't just a money thing. This is all aspects of our lives. This is every piece that God gives us. I think there are people here who as we face into an economic challenge in this day, that there are takeaways that aren't just around giving better, saving better, spending better, but also people in this room are trusting for promotions, who are reskilling for new opportunities, perhaps getting back into the workplace after not being in work for many, many, many years. Side hustles, investments. I don't know. I, Maybe I'm just too practical, but I take God to work with me. I can remember starting to do this. My first ever proper job went up to London. I was working for a big four accountancy firm. I was 18 years old. And my first job was to audit the fixed asset register of some big software company. I had no idea what those words meant. I still don't. My second job, we were up in um, Canary Wharf in one of those big skyscrapers in this big boardroom. I was the youngest person on the team, and their job for me was... To reconcile the foreign exchange movements between the different treasury departments of this massive media company again no idea what that means i don't know to this day and that was my job and i thought okay okay john 14 26 says the holy spirit will teach you all things now i haven't been to bible school so i don't know if this is theologically correct at all but i took myself to the toilet locked the door sat down and said god your word says your holy spirit teaches me all things I'm not smart enough to know any difference, so I'm going to stand on that word right here, or sit on that word as it was, and I'm going to walk back into that room and say, I need to know this stuff. I need to know this stuff. I can remember just walking back out, feeling no different whatsoever, sitting down, and then just things starting to click. Some of us need to take God to work in a new way tomorrow morning. Some of us need to take God to work in a new way. Some of you are believing for promotions, and yet... That promotion isn't going to come by any sense of entitlement or any sense of you deserving it deserving it it's going to t- come by hard work and it's going to come by you starting to do your boss's job and make it easier for them that joseph anointing of being given the entire household to steward because of you stepping into it the bible talks about this over and over again if we should bring up those two scriptures Sue's. God will generously provide all your need. You'll always have everything you need and plenty over to share with others. Let's trust God that the increase in our lives isn't about increasing our standard of living, but of increasing our standard of giving, that the overflow will be greater. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man that does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on that law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yield its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Some people have got to take God to work tomorrow morning. This echoes Deuteronomy, which talks about how all the work of our hands can be blessed May every increased resource for people in this place and for this church be to build longer tables, not higher walls. In Jesus' name. Father, may we never trust for more for our own selfish ambition, but help us build longer tables for our communities. We started off considering the context and the consequence of not getting this right. Well, how about we just consider for a moment the consequence of getting this right, of getting this done well, of being good stewards, wise stewards across the Southwest who live for the future, sacrificial givers who up-level every circumstance around them, upwardly mobile workers who reskill and side-hustle and have Joseph favor for promotion, faithful entrepreneurs who see market opportunities and start new charities and projects things that the world needs that we can go and solve unashamed table turners that see injustice and walk into that situation to stir the pot and say this isn't good enough it's got to be done a different way cities rejoicing as the righteous rule cities rejoicing as the righteous rise may across the southwest our regions, our postcodes, our towns and villages be blessed as a result of us getting our lives in priority with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. There's a wonderful book by Edsel Silvoso called Transformations that chronicles city after city and nation after nation that have seen revival that's had social and economic consequence. Politicians and workplace boardrooms that have invited Jesus into their midst and seen societal problems fade away, have seen economic problems fade away we're not working some formula here but we are saying God you are the king of kings and the lord of lords you teach us all things, you supply all our needs you've said that if we walk in your counsel that whatever we do prospers Where do we go from here? There are loads of great resources to dive into any of this more, whether it's thinking more about your giving, your saving, your spending, your earning. I've mentioned transformations, that's great if you're in the marketplace. Money, Possessions, and Eternity, a book by Randy Alcorn's, a fantastic book about the primacy of God in our finances. A church here over the next few weeks, we're going to be. Inviting interest for those who want to meet weekly and do a course around some of this. We've got people in this room who are cap advisors, cap counselors, Christians Against Poverty advisors, helping people come out of debt. We've got people in this room who run courses on financial peace and well-being, and there's going to be some options, some opportunity over the next few weeks of if you want to step forward and say, "Look, I want to get this sorted." There's going to be some ways we're going to put on for you to do that. We've got Alwin Moore Pryor who runs his kingdom business course every Monday night. It's not really a course. It's a, it's a meeting of people in the, wo- in the, in the workplace who just want to pray and share testimonies every single Monday night on Zoom. You'd be welcome to join that. It's on our website. But as we see this economic challenge around us in this nation, we see some exciting projects coming to us like Mark has just been talking about about the bigger boat I believe it will also come with God asking us to get our hearts right in this way in Genesis 22 we see Abraham be asked to give his son And then god steps in and provides and abraham walks away from that place and says i'm going to call this place jireh jehovah jireh my god who sees experiences and provides i'd love us all just to sit or stand love noah to lead us out on there's a refrain of, of that song jireh maybe we can just do that and it says you're more than enough. I will be content in every circumstance. I think before we just pray for a few other things, I'd love us to make that declaration this morning that we are content. Radical contentment. Contentment that looks at the normality of the world and says, nah, I know what you're doing. I know what game you're playing. I'm going to be content no matter the circumstance. Radical contentment that isn't settling, that doesn't sit down and say, whatever I get, I get, but reaches, knowing that the steward is one who seeks for increase.